Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011... He returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. We turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to begin today with verse 6. For those of you that have been with us, we're talking about the sin of demanding our own rights. The sin of demanding our own rights. And this is part three of that message. The problem is there is a brother within a church suing another brother in the church there at Corinth. And Paul has a lot to say about that. We've seen the problem. We've seen the misunderstanding. We've seen the shame of demanding our own rights. And what we've gathered so far is the, it's tragic when believers will not die to self, go to the cross and learn to solve their own differences. When we're not willing to do that, when we're not willing to seek a biblical solution, what we're going to even see in force today is we lose our witness to the lost world that is around us. You know, it's amazing to me, as we've seen in 1 Corinthians 6, but we know this from other passages We as believers have the Word of God, which gives us the standard by which we make our own judgments in things concerning to this life. A better translation of verse 4 reads this way of chapter 6. If then you have standards for material things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are the least esteemed in the church. Now, here's what he's saying there. We do have standards. We have the Word of God. The world does not. We have God's mind, they do not. We have the Holy Spirit living in us and we can solve our own problems. In fact, he calls the people in the church the least esteemed. He's not talking about the least esteemed in the church. He's talking about the people in the church that as far as the community is concerned are the least esteemed. The people who laugh at our faith. The people who laugh at our God. But he says, listen, you that are the least esteemed, Solve your own problems. You have the word of God. You have the mind of Christ, as the second chapter taught us. And you have the Holy Spirit of God living in your life. Solve your own problem. Be part of the solution, not the problem. You see, we can do that. The world cannot. In verse 2, it says we can become the smallest of law courts. The smallest of law courts. What does that mean? That means if I have a difference with you, or you have a difference with me, each of us can become the smallest of law courts. We can bow down, die to self, and seek for Christ to be glorified in our life, and that becomes the solution to the problem. We can become the smallest of law courts. The world, they don't do that. They have their legal rights, and they're going to enforce them because they want what is theirs. But the Christian doesn't live that 
way. We can be part of a solution. But no, the Corinthian church says, no, sir, we're going to do it our way. We're not going to do it God's way. We have our legal rights and we're going to enforce them. And the effect is going to be devastating to the lost world that's around them. Our witness, listen, folks, our witness must be protected beyond all else. We must protect our witness. And we've got to realize it individually and corporately. And the way we behave sends a signal to the people in the lost world as to whether or not we know Christ or whether or not it's just a game that we're playing. In verse 5 and 6, he says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. The word unbeliever there is the word apistos. It means those who are hostile to the word of God, infidels, those who do not know the Christ that we know, those who have no eternal hope, those when he die, who, who when they die will, will, will spend an eternity in hell, but also it means those who Jesus died for on the cross. And they're out there. They're watching us. We may be the only Bible some of them will ever read. And the Corinthians, when they acted like them, this ruined their witness. You see, they were once that way themselves. It says that in our text that we're going to look at today. They were once that way, but now they've been brought out of that way of living. They've been washed. They've been sanctified. They've been redeemed. And therefore, they're to live differently among the world that they came out of. Well, the problem, the misunderstanding, and the shame, and today we pick up on that. The fourth thing is the defeat that is obvious when one demands his own, own way. The defeat that is obvious when one demands his own rights. Verse 7 of chapter 6. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Now that word defeat is an interesting word. It's the word hetema. It literally means to be overcome, to move into a state of being worse than before, to degrade oneself so as to become a total failure. And here's what he says. Now listen to him. A believer who demands his own rights, whether legal or not, a believer who demands his own rights and takes another believer into court is himself a failure in his Christian walk and witness and his act of doing that must be considered as a defeat for the body of believers that he represents. You see, this is not an unbeliever suing a believer. This is not a believer suing an unbeliever. These are two believers suing one another. And that's a defeat to all. No one wins. It's a lose-lose situation. Our witness is totally defeated when this happens. And that's what Paul is trying to tell the believers there in Corinth. Just because in Athens and in Corinth they sued as a matter of entertainment does not mean you can drag that practice into the church. Believers don't handle their problems that way. Well, he sets a precedent for them in verse 7. He says, actually then... It is already a defeat for you, for you to have lawsuits with one another. Then look at the question. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Whoa. Paul says that our witness is so important to the lost community around us that even if it's a believer and he offends us, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? The word wrong there is the word adikios. 
And the word adikios means to be treated unjustly. Ah, without dikios, without righteousness, to be, or without justice, to be treated unjustly. Now that's, that's what he says. Why not rather be treated unjustly? Would you not rather do that than lose your witness? You see, if you take legal action, he says, you're going to lose your witness. Why not go ahead and be treated unjustly? And then he goes on to say, why not rather be defrauded? The word defrauded there is the word that means deprived from something. Now you can take the word defrauded in the sense that a brother has defrauded you, but you can also take the word, why, not, why don't you let your rights be deprived? Why not be deprived of your rights to take this person to the court? Is it not better to be deprived of having your legal right to take somebody to court and to preserve your witness? Why not rather be treated unjustly? Go on and rather be deprived. You know, we have come so far from sinner as to what Christianity is. This sounds kind of funny to the mind, doesn't it? But if you go back and study 1 Peter, particularly the second chapter, and you see how the Lord Jesus was treated on this earth, how he was reviled, how he was blasphemed, and how when he was reviled, he sought not to revile back, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And yet when we do the other things, when we take our legal rights, what we tend to do with brothers, we, we put ourselves above the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus didn't do that. The apostle Paul says it's better to be wrong. It's better to be deprived of your right, your legal right to take somebody to court, to protect and to preserve your witness. Solve your differences amongst yourselves. If you can't solve it individually, have Christian arbitration, but don't take it out to the ungodly world who already laugh at your faith. They already mock your thinking. They already make fun of the word of God. Don't, don't, he says. Step into their arena. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. You have the Word of God. Solve your differences amongst yourselves. But when we decide not to do that, as the Corinthian church chose not to, then we defeat our witness with the world and the whole body of believers are affected. Now I want to say this, because I think sometimes we need to hear it afresh. None of us are, are islands unto ourselves. I know there are times when I think that, and I know there are times you think that. And you think that nobody else is going to be affected by what I do. But I want to tell you something. It, everybody is affected by what you do in the Christian community. We're all a part of the body of Christ. You know, I, I hurt my big toe when I was playing basketball in, in college. <laughs> That's a little bitty. Actually, on my foot, it's not a little bitty thing. But on most people's feet, it's a little bitty thing. <laughs> And that, that's a part of my body that you don't even see. It's, it's, it's inside my shoe. You don't even see it. But that little toe affected my whole body. I had pain in my head because of that stupid big toe that I hurt. And that's the way it is in the body of Christ. You just can't go off and act like a loose cannon. You see, we're accountable to each other. and We're accountable to Christ. And what any individual in the body of Christ does not only affects his witness with the world, it affects all of our witness with the world. Why do you think people laugh at the church in the 20th century? Why do you think they raise up their nose and say, yeah, if, if, I had to, if Jesus is like those Christians, I don't want to be a Christian because of the way we've lived all of these years. If the world was interested in what's going on today, they'd be in here, but they're not in here. And what happens is when we go out there, we need to show them that we have something different than what they have. But when we stoop to acting like they act, we ruin our witness in the world. Verse 8 says, 
On the contrary. In other words, you've chosen to do something different. Instead of going ahead and being wronged, instead of going ahead and being defrauded, give up your rights, your legal rights. He says, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud and that even your brethren. In other words, he says, hey, you stoop to their level. The same people who've wronged and defrauded you, now by your taking them to court, do you understand you are wronging and defrauding them? <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? You've stooped to their level. In other words, by wronging there, you're treating them unjustly because that's not the way God would have you to treat. And if you choose not to do it God's way, you've chosen an unjust way of doing it. And by defrauding them, you're not only defrauding that individual of his witness with the community, you're defrauding the whole church. You're, you're the part, you're the one who's the aggressor. You're the one who's doing this now. Instead of being willing to be wronged and being willing to be defrauded, you have taken the initiative and you have chosen to do this. So now you have stooped to their level. And so you deprive everyone of their witness. We must think soberly. We're not of this world. We're not to react as they do. We must solve our problems, if not personally, at least with the arbitration of Christian people that are around us. You know, down south they have a little lizard. I remember we had uh, some staff and I, years ago that were down at our hunting uh, place down in South Carolina. <laughs> and one of them were in their pajamas and in the sleeping bag one night, and I caught one of these little lizards. They're called chameleons. And I just wanted to see if this particular person was, uh, I won't tell you who it was, this particular person was really the outdoorsman that he wanted everybody to think he was. And so I just put that little lizard in my hand. I walked over, and while he was talking to someone else, snuggled up in his sleeping bag as cold as it was, I just sort of picked up the sleeping bag and went, boop. <laughs> And I watched him literally <laughs> almost tear the ceiling off trying to get out of that sleeping bag with that lizard inside of that. But these little lizards, you can put it on something red and it'll turn red. And you can put it on something green and it'll turn green. You can put it on something blue and it'll turn blue. It's called a chameleon. And isn't that interesting how the church loves to play that role? Well, I'm a Christian. Oh, I love Jesus, Wayne. I'll even sing in the choir. But during the week, if somebody messes with me, I have my legal rights. Now let me put my civilian clothes on and I'll act like the world acts. And we keep changing colors. And what the apostle Paul is saying, buddy, if you ever profess to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't walk out in the world and live differently. You have one standard, that's his word. You have the Holy Spirit living in you and you don't have the right to demand your own rights. You don't even have any rights, only privileges as bond servants of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what, folks, that's radical. That's radical. But that's the normal Christian life. You see how far we've come from it? And that's what Paul is trying to tell them. So he talks about the problem, the misunderstanding, the shame, and the defeat. You're already defeated, he says, by taking your case into court amongst unbelievers and not being willing to die to self, go to the cross, and solve it amongst yourselves, you're already defeated, not just individually, but corporately. You've damaged the witness of the body of Christ. Well, the next thing we want to look at is the question that must be asked of those demanding their own rights. What is this question? <laughs> you have to ask it. If I do it, you must ask it of me. If you do it, I must ask it of you. Are you really saved? Would a person who understands the word of God 
Would a person who, who loves Jesus and lives dead, dead to self, would that person go against what God says and take it into his own hands and do this? Would he really? Is that person really saved? I'll tell you, see, you send a wrong signal when we do this. And so everybody must ask this question. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. See, what we've got to understand is we must be aware that unbelievers join the church just like believers. And the unbelievers of Paul's day, this is the way they lived. I've already done all this. I can't go back and re-preach it. That, matter of fact, suing each other was not only a, a, a right they thought they had, it, it was entertainment. It was like a sport. Everybody in Rome sued everybody. That was the, that was the way they handled all their differences. It happened in, I mean, in, in Greece. It happened in Athens. It happened in Corinth. And everybody was suing everybody. So he says, hey, now listen, many times unbelievers join the church. We're known by our actions. And demanding our own rights was the trait of the pagans of Greece. Now, look over in 2 Corinthians just for a second, chapter 13 and verse 5. And the Apostle Paul makes an interesting statement here. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. There's a fine line. Even though Christians can act fleshly, there's a fine line between what's a Christian and what isn't a Christian. Because how far do you push that? And how much uh, leverage do you give to that kind of an excuse? Well, I'm just acting fleshly. I'm just, I'm just a, a baby Christian. Well, no, wait a minute. There's a fine line in here. And Paul says to these same believers, he says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And he says, examine yourselves or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Christ, Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. Now Paul says to them, hey, say, you better test yourselves. As a matter of fact, he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Examine yourselves. Make sure you have Christ living in your life. Your actions may be the actions of a person who goes through the motions but have never bowed before Jesus Christ. That's the question that must be asked. When you damage your witness to the world, you must ask yourself the question, do I, am I really a believer? Is that person really a believer? There are two words that describe the unrighteous that are used here in chapter 6. Well, several words, but in verse 1 and verse 6, I want you to see. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Verse 1, and then again in verse 6 of chapter 6. We'll look at that in a moment. Verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And the word unrighteous there is the word aviki. It's the word that means without righteousness, without a right standing with God, without the ability to act justly. So he, he gives that as a condition or as a characteristic of the people who are lost. But look in verse 6 of chapter 6, he gives another word that describes the unrighteous. He says, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Here is the word apistos, without faith. Those who are not believing in, in what we believe in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as I said, there's a fine line. The word unrighteous that we first saw is in verse 1 is also used in verse 7. Now watch this carefully. Because here, it talks about how a person treats you that's in the body of Christ. You think he's a believer. Is he? Look at it, verse 7. It says, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. 
Why not rather be wronged? And there's your word right there. It comes up right there. Why not rather be treated unrighteously, unjustly? So wait a minute now, hold. If unjust is a characteristic of the lost, and he says somebody in the church is treating you unjustly, then what do you have as a guarantee that that person who's treating you this way is, is, is a Christian? He may not be a Christian. But wait a minute, look in verse 8. Look in verse 8. He uses the word again. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Now, wait a minute. If, the, if unrighteous is the characteristic of the lost, but here's somebody in the church treating you unrighteously or unjustly, and then you turn around and treat him unjustly, will the real Christian please stand up, is what he's saying. Nobody knows the difference. Everybody's acting the same. That's the way the world acts. He's acting that way toward you. You're acting that way towards him. I used to work with Brother Haywood years ago. I was his, I was his youth and recreation director in 1970 and 71. And in our gymnasium there, I put a big sign up one day. After, after refereeing church league basketball for a while, you begin to wonder who the real Christians really are. Now, if you've never been in church league basketball and church league softball, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. I grew up in city league basketball. I mean, you had to be laying on the floor bleeding before they'd call a foul. I understood that. These are pagans. You get in their world, you live that way. But I want to tell you something. When I started refereeing and I started playing in church league basketball, I found stuff twice as bad as it ever was in city league. And so I put a big sign on the side of the wall. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And that's exactly what's going on here. In Corinth, he's saying, hey, guys, you don't have enough evidence out in the lost world of Corinth to prove that you are even Christian. You're acting just like they are. And the one who's, who's offending you, they might not even be saved because they're acting like lost people and you're reacting like lost people and the lost people don't know the difference. So you're killing your witness is what he's saying. And so there must be a question asked here. Am I saved if I'm acting that way? Not only that, is the person who dealt with me, is he saved? Because this is not the way a Christian is supposed to behave. Now, in the world, the standard is not the same as in the Christian community. We must understand this. In the world, for a person to be good, a good person or a righteous person, when you say righteous in the sense of being a good person, uh, all it means is you don't harm another. And if you don't harm another and you're a passive kind of person and you live within the bounds of the law, then as far as the world is concerned, you're a righteous person. You're a good person. But be careful. That doesn't mean they're believers because Christ taught us that the lifestyle of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the same way. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, as a matter of fact, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness, your good deeds, your goodness, your good little things that you do, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, in their world, that's all it means. Just be good to your neighbor. Don't harm anybody. Be a decent person. Man, that guy, he's an upstanding citizen. That doesn't mean anything when it comes to the kingdom of God. That was the Pharisees of that day. And they would never enter the kingdom of God with that kind of righteousness. You see, Christ went further with us as believers and taught us we should love our enemies. When you take your brother to court, is that loving your brother? Matthew 5, 43 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, the very act of taking somebody into court slams itself up against the very teaching God has given to you and I. And even though the world can do that and get away with it 
and still be considered good people within their legal bounds. Christians can't because we're told to love that enemy, never to treat them the way the world treats them. In the heathen mindset, a righteous person was one who acted, uh, didn't act selfishly. He was one who was not forgetful in, in, he, he, in the sense that he did not transgress the bounds of the state. In other words, he's the one driving down the highway at 55 miles an hour. I mean, he just drives the speed limit. He pays his taxes. I'm going to leave that one. He pays his taxes. This is, what, this is what a good person in the world is all about. You get a person running for political office and they say, well, he did this and he was chairman of the PTA and he, and he didn't get any speeding tickets for five years and he did this and he did that. And the world says, that's a good man. That's a good man. He gave everyone his due. That's the way the world acts. Uh, they expected to receive their own though, whatever was in their legal right. I want to tell you something. In the world, you can be a good man and a righteous man in their standards and still take your brother to court because it's within the law to do that. It's within your legal bounds to do that. You can do that in the world and not know Jesus from a hole in the ground. And the world will say you're a good man. Man, I did a funeral one time and family was standing around the casket and one of them said, I'll tell you what, if anybody ever goes to heaven, that lady will go to heaven. And I said, is that right? Did she know Jesus Christ? And almost before I could even say it, he was saying, I'll tell you why. She's the best woman I've ever been around. She made the best cookies. And whenever I went to her house, she'd always give me those cookies. And she was nice to me. And she was kind to me. And if anybody's in heaven, she's in heaven. That's the world's perspective, folks. That's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's the person who lives within the bounds of the law. But that same person will take his legal rights and sue your pants off if he has to, to get what is his due. And the world still says he's a good person. But you can't get away with that in the church of God. You cannot get away with that in the church of Jesus Christ. The heathens say, my right is my duty. The Christian says, my duty is my right. And what is the duty of every believer? To love his brother. Galatians 5, 14 says the fulfillment of the law is found in one word, love. And verse 22 of Galatians 5 says, and the fruit of the spirit is love. And that word love agape does not mean some mushy, I just love you type of thing. It means I'm committed to you no matter what it costs me to do whatever is necessary for your spiritual benefit in the kingdom of God. That's what the word means. And we're committed to that, folks. We're committed to that. Our, our, our duty is our right. In other words, we are commanded to love one another. When you are offended by a brother, and I'll tell you, when it affects your pocketbook, that's where it really, that's where it really, really begins to make us nervous, doesn't it? And when it affects your pocketbook by a brother in Christ, and you go to a counselor who doesn't know Jesus Christ, they're going to say, wait a minute, man, you've got a perfectly legal right to take this guy to court. You can sue him for all he's worth. And you say, well, good, I think I'll do that. But if you come to the Word of God, the Word of God is going to say, love your enemy. Pray for him who persecutes you. Matter of fact, look over in Matthew chapter 5. I want to show you something else. Matthew chapter 5. By the way, this is in that part of Scripture that's inspired. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's all inspired. It's in the red part. You know, the red letters, that's inspired. Matthew 5, verse 39. And the word for evil there has the idea of him who's out to injure you, hurt you, get you. You know, we think about somebody physically hurting you. We never think about hurting your pocketbook. <laughs> that hurts more, doesn't it? 
Verse 39. He says, but I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you, now watch this, to take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Verse 41. And whoever shall force you to go with him one mile, go with him how many? Two. You know what he's talking about? In the Roman law, they had to carry a soldier's bags up to one mile. And that soldier would come in town and most of those, those Jewish people hated those Romans. And they knew what they had to do. So they would walk one mile from their house and drive a stake. And if they had to take his bag, dirt cut bag, and they'd have to walk with because the law said you had to. And they'd get one mile and they'd throw that bag down and turn around and walk back. But Jesus said, no, you're not that way. You go the second mile. And by the way, the way you do it tells everything about what you're doing. Here's an old boy that comes by and says, can I take your bag? Before the soldier could even tell him to take it. And he said, well, yeah. He gets the bag and picks him up. He says, man, how you doing today? Instead of walking behind the soldier as if he didn't want to do it, he's out in front of him, talking over his shoulder to him. And he gets out to the one mile marker. Instead of putting it down, he says, I'll tell you what. I just want to be your friend. I respect what you do. Let me take it another mile. And I guarantee you by the end of the second mile, that Roman soldier saying, that man is not like any man I have ever seen before. And that's what Paul is saying. If we're believers, act like it. That's what he's saying. To where the world has to step back and say, man, this guy's not acting like everybody else. I think this guy really means what he says. I think this guy really wants to do what God's telling him to do. That's what Paul's saying. But he's saying when you stoop to the very level of the world because you have a legal right, and you take your brother into court and sue him, what have you just done? You've just shown the world that you're no different than they are and you're gonna do exactly what you please to do, not what God says. He says in verse nine, or do you not know? And the word know there is evo, which is a form of horao, which means can't you get back and see the picture here? Can't you perceive what's going on? Are you so narrow-minded that you think life is built around this one little offense that somebody's given to you? Back up, son, and look at the whole picture and look at what God's trying to do here for the witness of his people. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? It's an interesting phrase there, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, inheritance is something you don't work for. The righteous may be out there working for it, but the, we receive it by grace. Inheritance is something that's by grace, I guarantee you. When I received the inheritance from my mom, that was nothing I ever did to deserve that. It was just something she did out of love for me and provided it for me. See, salvation is by grace, not by works. Inheritance gives us that idea just in the very word itself. But what does he mean, you shall, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, first of all, the kingdom of God has got to be seen in two ways. First of all, it's established inwardly in our hearts. It's right now, inwardly in our hearts. In Luke 17, in verse 20, it says, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And when a person receives Christ, Christ comes to live in him and the kingdom is the territory in which he reigns. And so you've got to see, first of all, the inward kingdom of God, that which is inside of us, the moment you're saved. 
He rules and he reigns in that kingdom in our hearts. But it also has to be looked at one that will be visible on earth one day. Matthew 25 verse 31 says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And that's a very visible kingdom when he comes to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. And he says the unrighteous man, the man who lives unrighteously, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. Inwardly or outwardly, he'll not be a part of that. So why then would you want to ruin your testimony to that man? Allow him to be able to see in you that Christ rules and reigns. Allow him to see the kingdom of God in your heart. Then perhaps that'll speak to him that God's kingdom could be within him, you see. So you really have to come back to the question, when I treat somebody like that, am I saved? When I'm treated like that and react to that person, am I saved? Just like the world, everybody's acting the same way. He says, don't be deceived in verse 9. The word deceived is planeo. We get the word planet from it. <laughs> don't be misled and go off track here. He says, they will not receive or enter the kingdom of God. It's in a present passive imperative. Do not be deceived. Present, don't be being deceived by the way the world thinks. Passive, it's happening to you. Don't let something outside cause this to happen. Imperative, it's a command. Constantly be checking to make sure that you're dealing with a believer and certainly that you're acting like a believer so that your witness is, is totally upheld by the people that are around you. Well, the problem, the misunderstanding, the shame, the defeat, the question. And then the final thing we want to look at today is the characteristic of those who demand their own rights. Now, this is what you enter into when, as a believer, you start demanding your own rights, legal rights, whatever kind of rights. This is the kind of person you associate yourself with. That's why the question has to be asked, do you really know Christ if you'd act this way? This is the way they act. This is what their lifestyles are. And boy, the list is not a fun list to go through. I want you to know that. It was a characteristic of the lost world to demand their own rights. And to me, what Paul is doing here, he's saying, you want to demand your own rights? Then okay, look at the people who live that way. I want to show you the unrighteous world because they don't know you any different from themselves if you're going to act like they act. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Now he's lopping them all together and showing you that none of these people are going to inherit the kingdom of God. See, let's look at it. Here's their lifestyle. Fornicators. The word in the Greek is porni, the plural of pornos, which is a male prostitute. The Greeks considered those who prostituted themselves for gain to be a fornicator. Money was their goal. And they would even sell their own bodies. Isn't it interesting how covetousness how monetary gain is associated with the sinful traits of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's so looking for Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, and I'll show you that. The two are linked right together. And you see, the root of suing somebody, the root of it is really to get back what you think is yours so that you can have that monetary gain back. And that goes right into the same category as the way the unrighteous live. Ephesians 5 and verse 5. He says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, and you'll see that again in a moment, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
In other words, covetousness, which led to fornication, was the same sin as those who sued another in court. And he's tying the two together. He said, listen, you want to act this way? Let me show you what that sin has continued to do in other people's lives. It's all downhill. Once it gets started, it's all downhill. Then he says in verse 9, nor idolaters. The word means a servant of idols, worshiper of idols. Interestingly, as we saw this a moment ago in Ephesians 5, 5, that's also put into the same little family there. Covetousness, fornicator, idolater. And in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which all of that amounts to idolatry. <laughs> if you can't see what he's doing, folks, I can't draw a clearer picture for you. I mean, it's just clear to me as a bell. He said, hey, guys, you want to act that way? You want to demand your own rights? Well, let me just show you what the character is, the other side of that fence with the people that you're dealing with out here in the world. Here's what goes along with that. Now, if you want to be associated with that, <laughs> look out. He says, nor idolaters, okay. Then in verse 9, he says, nor adulterers. That's a special word for that, moiki. In Hebrews 13, 4, it says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now, look here. He puts fornicators and adulterers together. And fornicators is linked to covetousness, and covetousness is linked to idolatry. They're all in the same family. <laughs> in other words, when you sue somebody in court and you refuse what God's Word has to say, you're entering into a family of people I don't think you want to be associated with, but they're going to associate you that way because they're no different. He says in verse 9, nor effeminate. I have struggled with what that word meant for years. And I believe finally have an answer for that. It means soft ones. It's a passive homosexual. And I don't like to even talk about those things in the pulpit, but that's the next verse and that's what I'm dealing with. Those who allow themselves as men with other men to be like a woman would be. Now then he goes on to say, nor homosexuals. And that's an active homosexual. The word comes from the word male and the word bed. And of course, I mean, you know what that is. And so he says, hey, you want to act like they act? Here's the rest of the way they act. And when they see you like themselves, what is in their minds to tell them that you're any different than they are? None of these can inherit the kingdom of God. Keep on going, verse 10. He says in verse 10, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now they're pretty clear and illustrative even in the words themselves. Thieves, a taker, a taker, not a giver for sure. The covetous, we already seen that word. Never satisfied with what you have, always wanting what somebody else has. You're going to get all you can, can all you get and sit on the can. That's covetous. Nor drunkards, and a drunkard has always got to be controlled by something out there, never the person that lives within him nor revilers, nor swindlers. Now, all of these characteristics are related to fleshly sin of covetousness at all. It's just the flesh. And what he's, I think what he's saying is, he says, God, don't you understand? If you go in, you better check and see if you're a believer, because if you're a believer and you go into court, legal court amongst unbelievers, you better remember what they are, and you don't want to go in and make them think you're like they are. You lose your witness with these people. Because that covetousness there, getting what's mine, boy, even saying it, you can hear the, the poison in it. Getting what's mine, buddy, claiming and demanding my right is the root of how the carnal, fleshly, lost world lives. Well, 
Wow. <laughs> the problem, the misunderstanding, the shame, the defeat, the question, the characteristics of those who demand their own rights. You see, folks, we're different. God has made us different by grace. You know, one of the problems is we, we haven't yet learned to die to self. We talked about that in one of our messages this past week. It's not in this series. But what does it mean to die to self? We looked at Abraham. Abraham had to die to his understanding when God told him to take Isaac up on the mountain, Mount Moriah. Abraham had to, had to die to his understanding, to his mind. He had to die to his emotions and accept the unacceptable. He had to learn to do that because it was unacceptable. This was the promise that God had given to him through which all the promises were going to come. And he had to die to accept the unacceptable. But then thirdly, he had to die in the area of his, of his will. He had to make a choice. He had to make a choice. And folks, that's, what, it, that's what, what the Christian life's all about. If you're suing somebody in the body of Christ, have you died to self? Have you died to that situation? Have you given it over to the Lord Jesus Christ? You may be going through the motions of doing other things, but until you come to that place of dying to self and saying, God, I will not do it my way. I will do it your way. No matter what it cost me in order to preserve my witness and the witness of the church, and even the integrity of this individual, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to seek a biblical solution. I'm not going to take it out and parade it before the carnal, lost, fleshly world who mocks us as it is, you see. True story. In Asia, a woman had a maid. Now, I don't know what they call them there. Tassos gave me this illustration. I don't know what a maid over in Asia is. <laughs> I love this. And the woman who had the maid told her one day, he, she said, listen, I'm going to be gone for a while. Take one of these chickens. Had a little chicken yard there. Chickens running around. Take one of those chickens, pluck it and wash it and get it ready for supper tomorrow. She came home and was looking around, just had forgotten all about what she had told her to do and walked over to the refrigerator and opened it up. <laughs> and standing on the shelf was this chicken. No feathers, soaking wet and shivering. <laughs> She had done all the right things except the essential one. She forgot to kill the chicken. You can go through all the motions, friend, but until you're willing to die to self, you haven't done the essential thing. You can get counsel. You can go out in the world. You can say, Wayne, I don't believe you. That's not what the text says. I'm going to go find me a Christian lawyer. Hey, great, that's the kind to find. We got some in this church we'll recommend to you. I'm going to find it out for myself. That's fine. Get all the help you want to get. Go through all the motions that will make you look Christian to everybody around you. But if you haven't died to yourself, you haven't even done the essential thing. That has got to happen before you'll even have a mind to understand what God's telling you. It's not reasonable until you've presented your body as a living sacrifice. This is ridiculous to your mind. Romans 12.1 I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. It is not reasonable until it's day, until it dies. And then God will give you the understanding of what he's talking about. So remember, kill the chicken. <laughs> For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 